Being Black in America comes with its challenges. However, we understand that enlightenment through education is the oppressor's worst fear. By bridging the gap between academia and the people, our purpose is to equip you with knowledge that breaks down barriers during your journey towards truth and freedom. Welcome to the Black and Highly Dangerous Podcast. Yo, yo, Dad, what's going on? What's going on? Nothing much, just chilling, trying to enjoy these last few days of summer. I can't believe it is already mid-July. Like, seriously, where did the summer go? Yeah, try not to think about it too much. Uh, it is It is already halfway through, just about halfway through before we get back to business us in academia. So, yeah, yeah. you run with that. Yeah, mm-hmm. my month of July has been like really chill, have no travel plans. So really, it's like nothing much has been going on. And I'm happy about that. I'm yeah, happy that's a good thing. That. <laughs> that's good. <laughs> All that, a lot of traveling can, uh, you know, add up, be taxing over time. Yeah, how about you? What's going on nothing with you? I, nothing, just chilling. Just over here contemplating why uh, Tariq is still a bum on power. Oh, my God. <laughs> Let's not talk about I cannot <laughs> I'd be like, why not him? Why did it have to be Raina? Like, I know, man. <laughs> Tariq is such a bum, man. Like, come on. Oh, man. So, yeah, still frustrating. But other than that, I've been chilling, you know, hanging in there, relaxing, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. That is so funny. But, yeah, I, I get frustrated every weekend. <laughs> I just have to say, Lord, you know, he fathers are so important because Tommy about to fall for the okie doke with oh, his dad. Goodness. Like, yes. oh my god! Mm. Yeah. Fathers being your sons' lives, so they <laughs> they they uh, have a little street smarts, a little common sense. They they need fathers. I'll just say that. <laughs> yeah, it's about to be interesting to see how this whole Tommy situation about to play out, man. You know, we'll see. You know, he 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 is his antennas are up. Like he knows something don't sound right, but. But it seemed like he about to fall into that trap real quick. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like I told I told John, I was like, people who yearn for their fatherly love, like they they just are happy to accept whatever they are given in that moment. Lord. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> we shall see. We shall see. All right. Ooh. Ready to get into some uh oh Lord news? Yes, I am. All right. Hello. And welcome to BHD News, where we give you the most current and eye-opening Oh Lord news of the week. Join us as we present news that'll make you want to say, Okay, so in another edition of Wow Black... Mm-hmm. Let's talk about our latest uh, person who will be added to our collector cards, and that will be Coupon Carl. Oh, boy. <laughs> so there was a lady who, for whatever reason, she received a manufacturer's coupon because she called the company. Something happened with a product, and they sent her a coupon so that she could get you know, an updated product or a new product. She decides to stop at a CVS in Chicago and try to use the manufacturer's coupon. Um, Well, the manager on duty said that he had never seen a coupon like that before and said that the coupon was fraudulent. (laughs) Um, She tried to explain that, like, no, I got this from the company, blah, blah, blah. Um, And he decides to, as you can guess, like they always do, call the police on her. (laughs) My goodness. Another one bites the dust. Coupon Another Carl. one bites the dust. And of course, she wasn't afraid to have the police call. She's like, okay, call them. Like, what's up? Because it's a freaking coupon. Like, seriously? And like, if you watch the video, he's so shook. Oh like, he God. is like... <laughs> And come to find out, the first time he called the police, they hung up on him. I don't know if that was an accident, but, like, clearly somebody needs to hang up on you. You are wasting taxpayer dollars. But they ended up sending, like, three tactical units. And, you know, it's just ridiculous. Over a coupon, a coupon. 
That is insane. Yeah, and I saw the video, uh, you know, once again, highly disappointed at <laughs> what's going on. He was shaking like crazy. And I'm like, bro, you cannot be this nervous over a, a coupon. And I don't even know why you would bother calling the police over a coupon. Like, just don't use it. Be like, no, you know what I'm saying? But you can call the police because you think it's a fraudulent coupon. Like, come on, man. People are so crazy out here. Well, up another it's one. Another one like, I, so... So I can't extreme coupon. I can't, you know, I can't save money. Can't, can't save money, man. Oh my God. Oh my. I know she was just trying to think about it. I think she was trying to buy like feminine hygiene products or something like that. And she first went mm-hmm. to the self-checkout, you know, trying to just use it herself. But the self-checkout, because it was a manufacturer coupon, wouldn't uh, read it. Do it. So then she went yeah. to him thinking that she was going to get help. And uh, nope, uh, sorry, can't use coupons while black. So we have to call the police. <laughs> you are not helpful. Oh, not my helpful. goodness. This is crazy. Uh, well, well, folks, okay. you can see that, you know, again, this is not an isolated incident. We pretty much have a story like every week, every other week of this kind of nonsense and happening. <laughs> there are at least three or four stories that I could say while black mm-hmm. just this week alone <laughs> that I am not sharing just because you know it would be overkill mm-hmm. but I have three or four other stories that I could literally tell that just happened this past oh week my God. that's crazy that's crazy right. um so for our next story so we had that big episode about you know marijuana legalization and decriminalization and and all of those things well um of course, every not everyone is not on board. So typically getting caught with a few pots of uh, potted marijuana plants in Pennsylvania, you know, it could lead to a criminal charge, but most likely probation. But for one Pennsylvania man, it ended in a death sentence. What? So. Yes. So a gaming commissioner bulldozer was using a machine to like clear some fields in Pennsylvania when he spotted a car that was kind of like in the underbrush. It was, you know, ducked off, you know, they were riding dirty Mm -hmm. or whatever. And so the bulldozer operator called the police. So when the police arrive, they find 10 potted marijuana plants. And then they also spot two men who, you know, take off running. Mm not surprising um so the the police decided to enlist the help of the bulldozer operator to try to find the men and they're blazing through the fields they quickly find one man and they apprehend him they take him you know into custody um but come to find out why the bulldozer and trooper were like roaring through the fields um they ran over the other man oh my goodness Man, you know, I saw it going that way. That's sad. First off, yeah, can you can police just like use other, you know, non-authorized equipment like that to to chase somebody down and other civilians to do that? Right. That's kind of crazy. <laughs> right. Like, first of all, that bulldozer operator should have never been like enlisted in this yeah. chase to like they already had the other dude in custody and they had the car. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you telling me you couldn't have found the you dude found any other way? Him. Like, this is something that would have led to probation. Like, it really ain't that serious. Yeah, that's crazy. Oh, my God. You know, I, I, this is not the movies, people. You just can't be running the running the fields <laughs> <laughs> using construction, construction <laughs> equipment to chase down the bad guys. You can see that it doesn't hit right? the same way it does in the movies. Like, oh, that's sad. It does not. Like he and I bet that bulldozer operator thought he was doing something too. Probably like, too. Oh, like, I'm about to help the police. Let's go. Right. Don't do it, people. My God. That's crazy. Yeah, that's sad. Okay. All right. Okay. And so for this final story, this one is probably gonna make your blood boil. So mm-hmm. We all know how police officers and, you know, district attorney's office, they are very concerned with um, like their case rates and the number of cases that they clear. You know, they want to boost their uh, crime solving statistics. And uh, while many of them do it through legitimate hard work, one Florida police department achieved their perfect crime solving record, um, I think at least two years in a row, by pinning unsolved cases on random black people. What? Oh, goodness. Yes. Come on. So 
um, there was like a federal investigation into this like Florida Police Department because come to find out the police chief instructed several officers and this has now been put in the indictment like this has all been like stated under oath. He told several officers that if there were any burglary cases that had not been solved, that if they see anybody black walking through the streets and they have somewhat of a record, arrest them so that we can pin them for all the burglaries. Now, during this police chief's tenure, 29 of 30 burglary cases were solved including all 19 cases in 2013 Mm. of the burglary of the 30 30 burglary cases documented in 2013 and 2014, nearly all of them were uh, attributed to black males. Mm. And not surprising, like after, you know, he got busted after that tenure was over in 2015, None of the burglary cases were solved. Yeah, I bet. So you go from like a perfect rate to you can't even solve any of them. Yeah, because you're not a good officer. You can't do your job well. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my goodness, that's crazy. That's crazy. Yes, I'm really interested in finding out what's going to happen to all of these people that have probably either either pled out or went to jail over a bogus burglary case because we we already know some people confess to crimes because it is just less expensive and less time consuming to to plead out than to actually fight for your innocence mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you see especially yeah that's what they target these marginalized populations as they do because you know you're going to have be the most vulnerable have the least amount of resources to fight it uh, and most likely take the plea. That's crazy, man. Uh, that's so sad. Yeah, the, the system is corrupt. And I hopefully it these is. officers get some big, you know. And I, and I feel like even even though he's a, a commanding officer, if you know this is wrong, why don't you report it? You know, why don't you st- stand out, stand up against that? Like just instead of just following these commands so blindly and just doing the wrong thing, that's the issue. Because you know. that's the that's that blue network. What what did they call it during that um, episode we had about police? The blue shield, the blue yeah. wall. Mm-hmm. They said that they operated like a fraternity. So it's just kind of like you just know how it is. Like okay, your your blue brother is doing something. You don't want to be on the outs. You don't want to be the snitch. You don't want to be the whatever. Until and so you discovered. you. Yeah, until it's discovered. Yeah, (laughs) but they all pled not guilty. Child, come on, on. and people's lives and things have been disrupted and maybe even ruined because you can't do your job effectively. This is crazy. And this is why when they're constantly talking about all the black crime statistics and you know how much black people are doing, like we have to. Now I'm not gonna say. Black folk, black folk ain't committing crimes, but we have to take some of this stuff with a grain of salt when we know that these statistics might be biased or they might be um, increased or boosted by um, police crime and police negligence. Yeah, corruption. You know yeah, what I'm saying? What they doing. And corruption. Yeah, that was the word I was looking for. Yeah. I couldn't find it. But Yeah, no, that's exactly, I mean, yeah, like everybody talks about the rates and it's so high, but there's a lot of racism a part of those rates. <laughs> a lot of a lot of <laughs> corruption and tension uh, that caused the rates to look as high as they are. And, and most, mm-hmm. most studies do show that, you know, whites are just as likely or more likely to have contraband, to do illegal things, commit crimes, but they're more likely to get overlooked by the police and not convicted with anything. Mm-hmm. It's, 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 uh, hopefully we continue to work on this as a society and do better. Is yes, yes. Um, but this, is part, this leads us into what we'll be talking about today's topic. Uh, we have a really good guest, a former colleague of mine, uh, Dr. Alexandra Cox. Uh, she's working at New Pulse. Now she's at the University of Essex over all the way over there in England um, doing her thing. Uh, she focuses on um, pretty much juvenile justice and youth justice and juvenile delinquency. So we wanted to spend some time to getting 
and uh, picking her brain with her expertise on that topic. She has a book that recently came out a couple months ago called Trapped in a Vice, The Consequences of Confinement for Young People, uh, which we talk a little bit about the book, but we also talk about generally just what's going on in juvenile justice and juvenile delinquency um, issues dealing with, you know, gender and race and stuff like that. We ask questions about famous cases like Khalif Browder and, and the importance of those and changes are being made and how we can make change. So really, really cool conversation uh, with Dr. Cox about about this important topic for sure. Yeah, agreed. And it's something, you know, we talk about it, but we forget our youth. We forget that they're being like trapped into the system and, you know, is going to impact their outcomes like for, for years and, and potentially decades to come. So yeah, this is a really important topic and I'm really excited to dive into it. Yes, yes, for sure. All right, so you know we know y'all enjoy and we'll catch up with y'all after the interview and uh, see you soon. An estimated 2.1 million youth under the age of 18 are arrested in the United States every year. Although the overall rate of youth involved in the juvenile justice system has declined in recent years, more than 1 million cases flow through juvenile courts annually. Today, we focus our attention on learning more about juvenile delinquency and justice by interviewing Dr. Alexandria Cox, a criminologist, lecturer at the University of Exus, and author of Trapped in a Vice, The Consequences of Confinement for Young People. Specifically, we discuss key takeaways from the book, the school to prison pipeline, the most pressing issues facing incarcerated youth, and possibilities for reforming the juvenile justice system. Welcome, Dr. Cox. Well, hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Black and Highly Dangerous podcast. Today, we have a very special guest, Dr. Alexandra Cox, joining us today. Hello, Alexandra. Hi, how are you doing? Welcome. Welcome. (laughs) Welcome to Black and Highly Dangerous, PhD. Today, we'll be uh, picking Alexandra's brain a little bit to talk about her expertise area around youth justice and juvenile delinquency and juvenile detention. Um, You know, a lot of this has been discussed quite frequently and more so, um, especially when we see more popular culture taking the reins and discussing these things when we talk about things like the documentary that Jay-Z produced around issues like Khalif Browder, shedding more light on these uh, issues dealing with our youth and the criminal justice system. So we're definitely excited to have Alexandra on today to shed more light about that. Hopefully you all will learn something. I'm sure you will. Um, and, you know, we'll take it from there. So before we get started and dive into the topic a little bit more, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself, Alexandra, and kind of why you got into this field of work? Sure. And um, thank you so much again for having me. Uh, Terrell, you're a great colleague, so I'm happy to be back here with, with you again. <laughs> oh, yeah. <Always> <laughs> and um, so I, I work now in England at the University of Essex in the Department of Sociology, but I, I did work with Terrell at SUNY New Paltz mm-hmm. in New York. I, um, my I work as a sociologist. I came to this work through kind of a a slightly unusual path in that I started doing youth justice work when I was in college in the late 1990s. And it was a really important moment for thinking about mass criminalization and incarceration because we were kind of at the tail end of this arrest and incarceration boom. And I had in many ways lived through it because I grew up in D.C. um, during the 1980s and 1990s. And I grew up in what I call sometimes white DC because it's a very, very segregated city. And it was a city which was once the murder capital of the country. But it was also a city that where my own kind of ideas about um, and kind of racial consciousness were in part shaped around that kind of arrest and incarceration boom, where I was socialized as a child to really understand um, the kind of fusion of um, blackness and criminality in, in very powerful ways. And I think in some ways, my college education was not a kind of undoing of that socialization process. And I, I began doing some work with some graduate students at my college who were starting a chapter of Critical Resistance, which was a, is a national organization that's kind of been at the front lines of challenging the legitimacy of the prison state. Um, and at the time, we called it the prison industrial complex. But it was really that work that kind of galvanized my interest in doing more work at the intersection of punishment, mass incarceration, and mass criminalization, and especially how it affected young people um, who I've been kind of working with um, as they've been affected by the system. And also they were the people in many ways who were the real victims of this 
boom in mass incarceration. Um, so I, I went and worked for some time doing drug policy reform, um, work around kind of the criminalization of, of drug use, um, which um, at the time, this was in California, we were working with Michelle Alexander on a, on a case about racial profiling um, when she was at the ACLU of Northern California. Um, and then I, I moved to New York City and I worked at a public defender's office there as a client advocate where I specialized in representing teenagers charged as adults. And I, I landed on that work and then ultimately went on to get my PhD and, and wrote and did research with teenagers because I think I always recognized that this was a group of people who are sometimes actually kind of the most hated and marginalized in the justice system even though at the same time they're sometimes understood as being the most vulnerable and the most needed and in the most need of protection. And I I really have always kind of wanted to explore that paradox. Mm, That's really interesting. I, the way your story, you know, weaves together and, you know, how you talk about the importance of your college education and, you know, unlearning some of the things Mm -hmm. we've been having conversations on BHD about the importance of, you know, the college setting and, you know, shaping some of our adult beliefs and ideas, especially around justice. So I'm happy you Mm -hmm. said that because our listeners will hear. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, yeah. Um, so speaking of our listeners, can you give them a quick introduction to juvenile delinquency and justice? You know, you can think about it from like a historical perspective or just give them a better understanding of what what is it? Yeah. And I think that speaks to your last point, which is that in some ways, like for me, knowing our history and that history, which is kind of really what we can access through higher education is, is in many ways also what allows us to critique that history, you know, gives us those Mm -hmm. tools. Mm -hmm. Um, so it's a hard question, but I'm going to try and give it a shot. Um, so, I mean, I think one of the big takeaways is that there was this, the history is short in some ways. So the establishment of a separate system for punishing young people actually is pretty, pretty recent in the big scheme of things. So there was this broader movement that began to recognize childhood as a kind of separate status and the childhood innocence needed to be protected. And that um, really gained some steam in, in America in the late, mid to late 19th century. And reformers began to call attention to the need to protect children from what they saw were the harms of adult prisons. And they created separate courts for young people and sort of separate proceedings, which were actually civil and are civil proceedings, um, not criminal proceedings. And they were supposed to reflect young people's immaturity of judgment, their so-called innocence, um, the kind of ability to get access to services. So there were all these um, institutions that were built, orphanages, asylums, reformatories, um, and these places were built to protect children. But the key point is that they were largely built to protect white children. So mainly white immigrant children, um, Irish people, German people, Italian people. um, And these children were largely um, kind of taken out of the urban areas where they had, their families had immigrated to and, and placed into institutions, which were in largely rural areas. And black children remained in largely in adult prisons. And in fact, this came home for me when I, I was recently in Philadelphia at the Eastern State Penitentiary, which is now a museum. Um, and it was an adult prison founded in 1829. And I was... Um, looking at photographs of an exhibit they're doing about children there. And it was largely black children who were incarcerated in this adult prison um, with adults. But then kind of that dynamic shifted around the 20th century, early 20th century. And um, really uh, children of color began to be placed in these same reformatories, um, both through the child welfare system and the criminal justice system. Um, And those two things began to be really mixed up. And in fact, that's like kind of an important thing to know about the juvenile justice system, which is that there've long been kind of intersections between um, removal from families um, as a vehicle um, or, or, you know, arrest as a vehicle for removal or removal from families that gets clouded with arrest. Um, And I think, and I guess really some takeaways from the history are, they're complicated, but some of the kind of key principles of the system, which is there's this idea that we, protect children from adults, um, that we use interventions in their lives. Um, we remove them in the name of reform. 
particularly we remove urban children, mainly to rural areas where facilities are based. This is all really important today, in part because there are very deeply racialized processes of criminalization. So um, there was this early idea that black children weren't allowed or weren't seen as deserving enough of that system. Now the system's largely populated by children of color. Um, So black children are are five times as likely as white children to be detained or committed to youth facilities, um, juvenile facilities. So it's meant to be a place where kids are protected rather than punished. But I think that we have to, like one of the things that I think the way system functions now is that criminalized kids, especially kids of color, are largely seen as bad and not really innocent. And so the forms of punishment in the system, even though they're meant to be rehabilitative, often are very repressive. And I can talk more about that when I talk about my book too. Nice. So are there things that, you know, and I'm sure in every field has this, that when you're listening Mm -hmm. maybe into the news or people just talking about juvenile justice, that you're like, ah, that's not quite right. You know, are there any kind of like misconceptions or myths about the juvenile justice system that people just usually are not aware of or get wrong that we should be aware of? That's a great question. Yeah. I mean, I think that we so so much. Okay. So there've been all these great documentaries, 13th and the documentary you mentioned about Khalif Browder, and there's been so much attention to the horrors of adult prisons. And I think that even though we all may feel like we know and understand what's happening inside of juvenile facilities, um, there's, I think overwhelmingly, I hear this assumption that it's kind of like prison light or it's not really you know, not as harsh, there's no solitary confinement. Yeah, there may be some stories about the horrors that exist, but um, I generally spe- speaking, I think I think those stories about horrors are sometimes reserved for the adult system. And, and what I would say is that, yes, you know, are there, you know, the systems have in some ways reformed even in recent years to look a little bit better um, in juvenile facilities. But I think sometimes we make a mistake when we assume that bad only comes in the form of broken bones or bad only comes in the form of solitary because actually juvenile facilities don't call it solitary confinement, but they routinely rely on room confinement, Mm. um, lockdown, room confinement. Juvenile facilities don't necessarily have, um, you know, guards beating down kids all the time anymore, although that still does happen, but they use physical restraints at extremely high Mm. rates, um, in some ways much higher than adult prisons. And juvenile facilities also are places which are um, where, you know, they're supposed to be rehabilitative, but I think we have to dive beneath the surface and ask ourselves what rehabilitation looks like. And I think those are the harder questions to ask because they're not like exciting documentary (laughs) questions, Mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So in thinking about uh, the things that you just mentioned in terms of uh, what uh, juvenile, um, juveniles face uh, when they are um, in, you know, in prison or a is that what you call, do you call it for youth <laughs> offenders? Yeah, it's a great question because I do, but I will say that when I applied for access to New York state system and I, and just in a literature review, I reviewed the literature about prisons. I was told in no uncertain terms that I should never use the term prison. And I, and actually it was, a, they really weren't comfortable with me using prison literature. And I thought that Like I say that just because it's so telling because they look and feel like prisons. I mean, they have, I think Terrell's been to one with me where, you know, they have the hurricane wire fencing, the, you know, this, the, the doors that you have to go through, which look just like prisons. Um, and you know, and so I like to use the word prison now because I think that it's, it's really true to what they are and what the experience is for a lot of people there. Yeah, I, I wasn't sure what to call it, but <laughs> it's yeah, they're juvenile facilities. They're they're called juvenile. residential facilities. <laughs> uh, so thinking about a, a few things that you just mentioned about the misconceptions and how they are so much like you know adult facilities, um, can you just speak a little bit more about like the most pressing issues facing youth who are in the system? Yes, I I think a few things. I mean, one is that I would say at the core of my, you know, what I found when I was doing research inside, and I would say is really probably one of the most pressing things is that the systems of 
and dynamics of social control are very highly racialized. So in the systems of behavioral control, the expectations of deference and of respectability and of uplift that I think we know about and are familiar from from other systems like education and elsewhere, they're so present in the juvenile justice system in ways that are um, managed through so-called like treatment programs and behavioral control programs, but on the everyday level through staff and expectations of young people's behavior. So they, they envision the ideal citizen of the facility as a tamed citizen, citizen, just to be kind of blunt about it. And it's one that's, I think really scary in a lot of ways because it gets overlooked because it's, again, it's not, you know, in our current era where we have to name overt forms of racism, it's very difficult to talk about. Um, those other forms of racism. And then I think secondly, just the ways that really horrible ways that we abandon young people once they've come out of the system. So we really neglect to pay attention to aspects of their lives that we do with adults. So with adults, we talk a lot about the collateral consequences of incarceration, but we sometimes ignore those consequences just because they're children. So even for a kid who has a delinquency case where they may not have a conviction on their record, there are a lot of the kids that I've worked with don't even know that they can't answer the way they can answer a question on an employment application. Um, or sometimes actually the delinquency case um, comes up in their subsequent court matters, even though that delinquency case is meant to be, um, you know, ignored. And then I think like out of that housing is one of those issues, which is most pressing because it, we don't, we don't realize like a lot of the young people in the system have been kicked out of their homes. They've been in foster care. They've been homeless. They can't live at home because of their conviction. Um, I had several clients who, um, couldn't live in the public housing projects where they came from because, um, New York city public housing, uh, prohibits people with convictions from living there or they couldn't go home because of fears about their safety. And yet because of their age, let's say a 16 year old who's charged as an adult can't live at home with their mother in their public housing project, where do they go? You know, there's no sort of social system that can um, provide for them. And I think it's really, I did the number of times that I sort of frantically as an advocate would have to frantically search for housing was, was quite scary. Um, and then I think just generally speaking, the kind of over-criminalization and systemic interventions in young people's lives. So a lot of times young people would talk to me and they'd say, you know, they talk a lot about the police being everywhere in their lives and um, being over-policed, but they'd also talk about other systems like child welfare, foster care, welfare, um, other state systems and interventions just feeling very present in their lives, but not in ways that supported them. <clears throat> so and we talked about this and you mentioned a little bit um, earlier on too when you gave the statistics about mm -hmm. you know people young people of color being involved in the system so can we elaborate mm -hmm. a little bit more on that um, to give our listeners kind of an idea as far as the differences in these in, in these demographics I guess when it comes to maybe like race mm -hmm. gender class differences uh, with with the involvement within the youth and juvenile justice system Absolutely. Yeah. So I mentioned the figures about um, the disproportionate confinement of, of black children. I think the over-policing of girls of color is really stark. Um, the federal Department of Education figures actually in some ways say a lot about the early experiences of girls. So black girls are suspended at six times wow. the rate of white girls, which is just um, really astonishing, you know, and that I think in some ways mirrors what I saw in the system. So it's like, not only were black girls punished in the entry point to the system more harshly, but also inside of the system. So when I was inside of girls facility, you know, black girls resistance to the systems of authority is viewed as, um, deeply, uh, threatening in ways that I think, um, we kind of, again, softer and harder to measure, you know, you can't put that into numbers, but, um, is very, is very, is, it's, it's a real struggle. Um, and then I think, especially in places like New York and California, I mean, Latino and Latina kids are increasingly becoming overrepresented in the system. And, and we have to kind of begin to pay a lot more attention to the ways that also racialized social systems account for that phenomenon, but also in some ways, I have to say, highlight differences between young people. So system, system actors like staff, also 
play on kind of issues of like colorism and racial ethnic differences and, and, and like in ways that actually embeds and entrenches um, racial divides and segregation that I think is, can get really ugly. So like in some ways also plays on um, kind of model immigrant kind of tropes and things like that, that I, that get played out in the juvenile facilities and really, complicated ways. I also worked in a facility where there were, um, which was a specialized facility for, um, LGBTQ youth. And I will say like, and also transgender youth. So who were, I was, I was pretty struck at how many queer kids I met inside of the system actually. And, and, and who were, and I, I, the, you know, the figures don't lie. I mean, queer kids are overrepresented. And then I think we can't neglect to begin to think about the way that white rural kids are also really, um, overrepresented in the system and particularly in recent years, um, the numbers, the rural incarceration rates are actually rising while other incarceration rates are beginning to fall. So, you know, paying attention to also the ways that also kids from rural areas, um, kids of color from rural areas, white kids from rural areas also come from communities which don't have as many resources in terms of alternatives to incarceration. So often they'll end up in the system for a crime which may someone I mean, in some ways, like if someone's arrested in New York City and they're 16 and they have um, a gun charge or a robbery charge, for example, they will most likely their first time get access to um, an alternative to incarceration program. But that doesn't happen in rural areas. So that stuff needs to be kind of picked apart a little bit more carefully, I think. Mm. Uh, so in, in your last response, you, you actually mentioned uh, discipline um, in schools mm. and, you know, the discipline that uh, black girls face. And I've been reading about this a little bit more and how, you know, is not just uh, gender, but things like skin tone actually also play mm. a role in like disciplinary outcomes. But on that topic, I am in education, my passion, mm -hmm. and I was wondering if you could discuss uh the school to prison pipeline just like discuss what it is for our listeners and why it's important to discuss absolutely yeah i mean i think i think the school to prison pipeline is for me and i'll say it from my perspective because i'm you know there's so many amazing people who who do this work and but i think i'll talk about it as someone who's worked with kids who i think are in that pipeline i think what it is is it's it's the ways that young people get criminalized in particular ways in school. And that can, that takes on a number of different approaches. So some of it emerges out of a 1990s era, zero tolerance approach to um, behavior. So what happened was schools began to kind of implement things like metal detectors and school safety officers and all this kind of policing apparatus in schools and also policies, which excluded kids who engaged in any kind of behavioral problems. So the school safety force in New York city is the 10th largest wow. police department in the country. I mean, it's enormous and it's, you know, these kinds of ways that we read about this, but it's pretty, you know, to go into a school in New York city and many public high schools, um, you know, seeing an officer sit at the entrance is, is a, is a normalized part of kids existence. So there's like the kind of the ways that schools, in some ways, people talk about resemble, um, you know, criminal justice institutions. But then I would also say there are ways, and you know this maybe as an educator too, like that young people's behavior gets punished and particularly behavior that what we know is in many ways a manifestation, for example, like kids with learning disabilities get disproportionately punished. Um, and then the consequences of that punishment are a chain of occurrences which begin with things like suspension and exclusion, um, which are devastating for kids. So I had a number of clients who were hated by their schools and who were excluded and punished and suspended. And I will say the school suspension hearings, which I've attended with my clients, are, first of all, they don't have any due process requirements. So the, they're like kangaroo courts, um, but also they become effectively, you know, like criminal justice system processes. So kids just get kicked out of schools. And the schools that they have to go to are notoriously um, punishing these alternative school networks. Um, there's been some great work done about, you know, what these schools look like. They um, and and what we see is like there is this literal kind of almost pipeline that happens when someone gets excluded from school and then kind of gets en route to criminal justice system exclusion. 
So let's start. Let's talk about your book. Um, okay. For, the, for our listeners, uh, Alex has come out with a book a few months ago called Trapped in Advice, The Consequences of Confinement for Young People. Um, and, you know, let, let's talk about kind of what was your idea when you were developing this book and your experience doing it um, and kind of overall what should be some of the major takeaways from this book as well. What are you trying to, what people should get from it and why they should check it out? Sure. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it kind of in some ways goes back to the Khalif Browder story you mentioned at the beginning. So I was working in New York City in the um, early 2000s and a lot of, a big part of my job was to go and meet with my teenage clients on Rikers Island. And I would go probably two or three times a week. And my teenage clients were charged as adults, much like Khalif was, and actually were in the same facility. There used to be a, a well, there's a facility where teenage boys were held. And I would often go and visit my clients um, and, you know, I'd, I'd meet with them in what's called the council visit area, which is basically the place where legal visits take place, but it's kind of at the front of the facility. And the one for teenage boys is particularly bad because it's like a mesh iron cage, basically, that you have to talk to them through. And mm. it's very difficult to have a conversation. And I have to tell you, I mean, I don't think I went there one time without seeing the teenage boys that I met with cry. I mean, it was, it, it's an awful place. And, and, um, and the crazy thing was, is that for all of the times that I've been to Rikers Island, I never, I think I've been once into, or two, no, I've been maybe two or three times into the back of the facility, but I did that as an advocate, not as, but just on, you know, through some advocacy meetings. Mm-hmm. And what I began to think about was like, you know, here I was doing all this advocacy for kids to try to get lesser sentences or alternatives to incarceration, but they were being sent to these institutions upstate, which I knew so little about. But also there was this perplexing way that, you know, all the ways that the system understood them, which was bad, um, you know, disposable, um, you know, inherently criminal, were not what I saw. Um, but also, you know, how, how could I begin to tell the story of the compelling story of these kids, um, lives, but also begin to also explore the ways that the system itself tries to kind of work on them and through them. Um, and so I, I went to grad school and I, I applied for and gained access to, um, do research inside of three of three juvenile prisons in upstate New York, one for girls and two for boys. And I think, um, I mean, I think the takeaways of my book are, and I really try to look at the way that the system itself is dominating, it's paternalistic, it's oppressive. And that's, it is that way for largely black and brown youth who, who enter the system. Um, but, you know, as I said before, for also for the, for these other groups of kids who are, um, you know, vulnerable to system intervention. And what I argue is that the system tries to stimulate their liberal subjecthood. So, this idea of autonomy, um, change and freedom from a life of crime, but actually in do, the, the tools that they use to do that actually stultify young people's growth and development and limits their opportunities for participation in the political economy and inhibits change both for the young people, but actually also for the adults who work in the system. Mm. Mm. Uh, so so in speaking of change and speaking of these outcomes and in the way our systems don't aren't actually working in the ways that we we think they are in terms of producing outcomes I was wondering what should we focus on when we think about reforming the youth justice system it's funny um, it's funny you asked that because I was reading that and I, I I was gonna it's funny because in the back at the end of my book I say you know, the reader will ask what we should do for change. And I, I, you know, and one of the things I talk about is like actually kind of taking a pause in a way, which is that we always so much part of the reason why I talked about the history earlier is that the history of the juvenile justice system has been so much about um, reform and change. And so I say at the end of the book, when people ask me, well, what should I, I do? I say, actually, you know, so much, so much of the focus has been on doing and in fact, we should maybe be asking, why should, why do we keep on doing this the wrong way? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, you know, what the part of the reason why I advocate for a pause, and I, I, I do a lot of work in the youth justice system and reform system is that 
I do think that there's a power in taking stock of the history and taking stock of what is happening and has happened now, because the obsessive focus on reform, which I, I witness every day because there are numerous foundations and I mean, juvenile justice reform is a very hot topic right now, um, is that, and as so I've had a chance to kind of go around the country and see what people are doing. And there's a lot of reinventing the wheel. And I, I think about this as I went in, I was in one of the facilities and visiting with, I was interviewing a counselor and there was a stack of books in the corner of his office. And it was for a program called moral, moral recognition therapy. And I said, why are those in the corner of your office? He said, Oh, we're, th- we're sending those to the, to the dumpster. You know, that's just, a, you know, yet another program we've started and then thrown out again. Now we're doing this new program, but basically it looks exactly like moral recognition <laughs> therapy. Um, so I, and I, so I think there's been a lot of reinventing the wheel. Um, and I, I think for me, like there's some broader questions about, um, the ways that this history has enmeshed young people of color in particular that are really important to analyze because the approach we've taken now is to do this thing called um, invest in these strategies around disproportionate minority confinement. That's a federal term. And so the focus has been on like reducing numbers and doing that through risk assessment instruments. But as we've done that, um, as states have used risk assessment instruments, the numbers of young people in the system has gone down, but the racial disproportionality has risen in part because risk is a proxy for race. So, you know, these tools or algorithms use as inputs things like arrest history, um, you know, history of involvement in schools. And of course, those things are really deeply shaped by racialized dynamics. Um, So it's almost like the system teaches itself to seek out black kids as criminalizable. Um, And I think we have to do much more serious work to understand the ways there, I just don't think that sort of bringing numbers down, um, like through kind of algorithms is, is a, is a truly value driven strategy. So kind of understanding also the ways that the systems themselves embed ideas about acceptable behavior is really important. Mm. Um, and then I think, I think in the political process, I mean, certainly advocating for, um, more broadly for actually interventions that exist outside of the system. So diversion, um, you know, like really not relying on custody and um, to to change or address the social problems that send young people into Mm -hmm. the system. Um, And then I also think building a cadre of young people who are activists and who are thinkers um, to do this work is incredibly important. That's why I, I mean, I am still like a true believer in in educational stuff because I do I think that we treat young people as tokens and kind of um, just assume that if a young person can be trotted out and talk about their experience in the system, you know, we're helping them. But I think what we can do is actually like build really meaningful educational interventions in, in people's lives and that that also empower them to, you know, become the agents of change themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can agree. And I think that overall, when discussing in the general scheme of things, when people are discussing reform, you know, naturally most of it has been focused on <clears throat> the adult populations involved in the criminal justice system. And, you know, when you think about it, and I think I also agree that I think we probably should take a step back and assess the situation um, because there's a lot of reinventing the wheel. It's a lot of just, oh, here's the new hottest program. Let's throw that in there. Let's see if it works. Oh, it didn't work the first time around. Let's dismantle it. Let's do something else. And I think also, I think there's real value to just Focusing on the youth, because even when you look at the kind of just the life narratives of even the adult offenders or whoever's involved in the system, many of it is, starts on early on, um, either from the upbringing and the environment they're raised in, family dynamics, whatever it is, getting involved in the system early. So I think if we thinking long term, if we begin to focus more programming and interventions for the youth that are quite effective, mm-hmm. then we'll see it trickle over into, you know, less problems and issues with the adult uh, pop- population when it comes to criminal justice reform, too. So I think there is, you know, a lot of value to that, that idea and perspective, for sure. Yeah, no, it's amazing, like meeting so many of my adult clients. And when I, I do like life history, um, I, I write life histories, and I'm always amazed to in some ways, I get the history of the system through their lives. So they'll tell me about the facilities they were in that I studied 30 years later. Um, and it's pretty powerful to hear the story of the kind of, you know, pathways through the system that, 
um, like continue it, in New York, I'm sure it's the same in, in many states. There are these facilities that people have gone through that have opened and closed and opened and closed and opened and closed over the years. So, and they've been given kind of maybe like the system has a different name or the facility has a different name, but they're all, you know, the same in some ways. Mm-hmm. But, and I, and, and I, I sometimes also think the tragedy of, I mean, there's this beauty in advocacy and activism, but, you know, I, there's also a lot of very high turnover and there isn't like, at least in New York, there's maybe one person who's been around since the 1990s who's been doing the advocacy. And so the long view is really hard to have because, you know, it's people burn out from the work and like they move to other states and they don't really do the work for that long. So it's hard to remember that, you know, like in 1990, there was a struggle to close youth jails in the Bronx. Um, that's important to think about when we're fighting for closing Rikers, because the problem is when we like what's happening now is that we're closing Rikers and we're taking youth out and they're actually reopening those very same facilities that were closed in the 1990s. Mm. So great that like kids are being taken out of Rikers, but these were the same facilities that we were asking to be closed in the nineties. Mm-hmm. So are there ways, speaking of like advocacy and, and activism and stuff like that, are there ways, you know, for our, let's say one of some of our listeners may be wanting to like get involved, you know, maybe at a local level. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not sure you don't know all of them around the world or the country, but you do have experience with this. So what advice would you give to someone who, you know, is looking to try to get involved and engage and in, in, in whatever way, maybe it's helping, maybe it's tutoring, maybe it's doing advocacy work, whatever it is, how can they be a part of this at a, at a more local level? Yeah. I mean, I think so. I don't know a huge amount about your listeners, but I'm going to assume, okay, like maybe there's, maybe there's some of your listeners who are teaching in higher education institutions, just as one mm-hmm. group. And I think, um, you know, there's great work that can be done for, in a lot of places to be doing, um, teaching inside, um, facilities. So doing workshops inside of facilities, teaching courses inside of the facilities, teaching inside of alternative schools, doing work inside of alternative schools. Um, at New Paltz, we, brought a group of some of our students in to do workshops inside of the facility. And we also taught a course inside of the facility. Um, and, and it was great. It was a really great opportunity to not only for our students to kind of spread some of the knowledge that they had learned, um, inside of black studies and sociology and other disciplines. Um, but also for the young people to kind of engage with young people, their age. And then I think for more broadly, just to get involved community-wise, I mean, I think that there's a lot of advocacy work that can be done about advocating for diversion and alternatives to incarceration. I mean, there's a movement kind of spreading across the country. There's an organization called Youth First, which is doing really great work in a lot of states from West Virginia to Virginia to um, New Jersey to New York to try to dismantle the youth prison um, complex. And they're connected with local advocates and activists who are doing great work. And I think also just, you know, really trying to kind of, in some ways, recognize like the thing I was saying earlier, which is that, you know, educating ourselves about the history in some ways actually touches on. So, you know, Daphne has an interest in education. I'm sure like what I always find when I'm reading stuff uh, um, about histories of education is how much, how many intersections there are in you know, our, our interests in the way that we think about these systems, they're, they all are very connected in a lot of ways. Um, and so kind of educating ourselves about the ways that, you know, the young person who we might be working with in the public school is also intersecting with all of these other different systems like foster care and housing. Um, so I think those are kind of just a few little things, um, little ways that people can get involved. Yes, I absolutely agree about your last point about the Mm -hmm. intersections. And I'm interested in education, but at the intersection of all of these other larger conversations. Mm -hmm. Um, And so in sociology, often I feel like sometimes education is under you know studied or is is not necessarily the go-to and that's why I love you know thinking about education at the intersection of all these other important issues so good point yeah and I think Um, what you're and just really briefly too like what you're doing in terms of thinking about immigration just as a really brief thing which I didn't mention which is that immigration detention facilities for mm -hmm. children are also in many ways you know resemble 
what juvenile detention facilities look like. And so, so many of us have not been able to access those facilities in part because the federal rules are so cumbersome. But, you know, there was one near us when we were, when I worked at New Paltz and Terrell that, um, I, it's ironic, but it had, it was a juvenile facility that had closed because the population's down and they just reopened as an immigration mm-hmm. detention facility. Oh, wow. So, wow. you know, these, these systems are all yeah. connected. <laughs> Yeah. Um, so in in closing, we were just wondering if you had um, anything that we missed, any anything you want to add that you weren't able to say and all of the questions we had for you. <laughs> uh, no, no, it's just fun to talk about the, the work. And um, yeah, and I think just kind of reemphasizing that in some ways, the harder work, you know, so many of my students come to me and they say, oh, I've watched the Khalif broader documentary. I watched the 13th. I'm so fired up about this work. And I think sometimes, you know, what's hard is that actually the harder work is actually analyzing and understanding the ways that what we think is good, Mm -hmm. like rehabilitation can sometimes be harmful. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Excellent point. So, um, is there, are there any places where people can find you social media, website, stuff like that? Um, well, I have a website for the book. It's nice. just trappedinavice.com. And I'm on Twitter, which I don't know. I is ju- I'm at Juvie Just Change on Twitter Twitter. So it's J-U-V-Y, J-U-S-T, change. Juvie Just Change nice. on Twitter. Nice. Okay. We'll, we'll definitely link that. We'll have those links. Okay, thank you both so much. <laughs> I really enjoyed talking to you. Yeah. Well, thank no, you. This was really okay. awesome. We appreciate okay. it. I appreciate it too. Okay. Bye guys. So Dev, what you think? What you think? Well, you already know, I was really excited um, to talk about the school to prison pipeline because I'm so interested in education and discipline is becoming a huge topic of discussion in terms of how schools are looking like detention centers and, you know, how we are treating our school children everyday school children, you know, in the same way that we are uh, treating youth of offenders who are in, you know, youth detention centers. And, you know, it's sad. And I do think people need to think more about like the intersection uh, between these different uh, life, life domains that students face from the family to the school to detention centers to, you know, the uh, what do you call that? The foster care system, just all of these different things. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, and when she was mentioning that, especially the issue with, you know, young black girls and being over punished um, and scrutinized in these in these areas, especially with education, being more likely to be suspended and, and the sanctions involved with that also had me think of some of the next phase of work that um, Nicole, Dr. Nicole Holiday was doing with her work talking about just, you know, getting more into the details is like how it's perceived, how when these young girls speak and how, you know, uh, uh, just the tones of how they're speaking is take is being taken and, and looked at in a negative lens or like, oh, they're being uh, insubordinate or talking back and stuff like that. Um, it's just how it's all connected, right? How she was making mm-hmm. Alex making a point like juvenile justice to education to even sociolinguistics and, and intonation <laughs> of how people speak. How it all serves, you know, all this research talks about the same thing, but also attacks it from different ways, uh, which is pretty cool all in all to say. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's a really good point. You know, uh, Dr. Holiday, she did she did bring that up. Very good point. Mm-hmm. Another thing that I was thinking about um is similar to juvenile uh ju- the juvenile justice system education is the same way to where like people are just spinning their wheels and just trying anything um in an effort to create i guess positive change but what really happens is nothing ever has a chance to work and we never have a chance to learn from our mistakes. So I thought that parallel between the juvenile justice system and the education system is so similar in how if we really want to improve outcomes for youth, we we got to be really thoughtful and we have to reflect on what we're doing and you can't just like shoot for the next big big thing and and hope is going to work. Like these are 
This, these people are our future. Mm -hmm. And if we don't get it right, if we are thinking carefully about how we are socializing them and the lessons that we're giving them, we're going to be screwed. Yeah. You know? Yeah. When we, and when we talk about how to fix certain things, and I think it should be similar, we should approach these social issues, right? If you want to think of it, maybe as sometimes people like social illnesses. Similarly to the way that the medical field does it, right? When they're trying to solve or figure out a cure for a disease or an issue, right? They test the medications over and over again, right? They figure out the effectiveness. Mm -hmm. They have pilot studies, whatever it is. And then once they really secure, like, what's the pros? What's the con? How does it work? What can be the side effects? No side effect. What's the benefit? Then they implement it on a larger scale. Right. But it's like tons of research is put into the solutions before you start putting it out. there. And I feel like when it comes to our social issues and social phenomena, we just are so quick to be like, oh, this sounds good. This sounds nice. Let's put it in there. And this the repercussions, you know, it's affecting people's lives. You know, if it doesn't work or the consequences or if, or if it's working and people are benefiting off of it and then you take them off it like you wouldn't do that in the medical field. Right. Like, oh, we're seeing improvements, but uh, we don't know if we want to fund this anymore. Or somebody else is in office. Let's take their medicine away. So now they can be sick again. Um, we don't do that. And I think we need to have that same kind of care uh, when we're when we're um, developing issues, uh, solving solutions for these issues that we see because it'll help you know, in the long run, instead of these kind of most of the time it's because I think it's politically based and it's like, what can I get votes for? Or what can people support? Let's implement it as quickly as possible. But I think as a society, we need to be like, no, let's 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 let this uh, marinate a little bit. Let's learn more about it. Is it effective? How can we make it better and then be able to apply it at a larger scale? And it could be 20 times more effective. Right. Or even more. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm definitely tired of people's uh, bright ideas <laughs> that actually aren't so bright. But if you have if you have the money uh, to get your ideas heard, sometimes <laughs> that's all mm-hmm. you need, and and that you will never personally be affected mm-hmm. by these decisions yep. unless you make your money from it. Yeah, but, empirical yeah. evidence, a part of it, which is like what Alex was saying, like. We have to begin to critique and analyze the solutions more instead of just saying, oh, we have a solution. It's good. Like, no, mm-hmm. because it can be having ill effects. Just like, oh, let's, like as she said, uh, let's use these risk assessments. Oh, we have the numbers of people getting involved, but black kids are getting more involved, right? The disproportionate amount uh, because the risk assess- assessment is a proxy for race, like she said. And if we're not looking at that, then again, these marginalized, this, this is what we have to realize. At least black folk, right? I mean, everyone should care about this, but for us, we have to be particularly careful because nine times out of 10, when there's consequences, it's going to fall back on us. We're the ones that's going to get hurt yes. and hit and, and, and messed up in it. So we can't, we don't have that luxury of just being like, oh, let's just see how it works or how who's going to hurt if it hurts anybody. Cause it's going to be us. We're going to hurt ourselves. So we can't just let this slide. Yes. Yes, we don't have, we cannot be anybody's guinea pigs or experiments. You know, another thing I really appreciated was her personal story um, and how it shaped her interest in studying this and how, you know, she's not just researching it. She, you know, she's been mm-hmm. living this in terms of like advocacy and things of that nature. And that's, that's always um, inspiring to me. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's one thing I like about scholars like Alex and, and others. It's just important to, it's different when you're in the field. Like she said, when she was going to that one facility and every time she left, you know, every time she was there, a young male of color, whoever was crying, right? Like when you see the effects of what's happening, like eye to eye, face to face, um, it, it drives you even more like I got to make a change. And my research has to just mean something. It's beyond than just publishing. It's beyond than just getting tenure. It's like I have to address this so that I can see less tears, right? Being involved and having that experience shaped and molded her, her research agenda, which is going to do, you know, profound things, I'm sure, in, in that field. And I urge other and this is, a, a, you know, a little bone I like to pick. Um, <laughs> you know, I had conversations with people of color who have, who are college educated and, and say all these things. And, and I'm always asking like, what are you doing for your community? Right. Or or where are you being a part of it? Are you being visible? Are you reaching out? Are you actually seeing the lives that are being affected? Cause sometimes I think 
with the higher you get, you kind of can, you have the privilege of being able to escape certain circumstances and environments, but you, we need more of us back in these communities in some way, right? We have to reach back and say, hey, here I am. Let me help you get where I'm at or, or even surpass where I'm at. Uh, but, you know, everybody, again, I said this before on this podcast, social media, Facebook, la, 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 messaging, passing. This is all fine and dandy for conversational purposes. But to see actual change, are you doing something or being in environments like Alex was sitting face to face, you know, mm-hmm. with people who are experiencing this? Um, so that way you really understand what you're talking about, because if you're just talking about it from uh, somebody else's post or from an online news article, you can be misinformed, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you can be saying the wrong things. And it's like through Alex's work, if she were to just go through what she saw on Facebook or the news, she probably, most people would probably feel like, oh, what we're doing is working. But sitting in there, like, no, these quote unquote solutions are not really solutions at all. And they're still hurting people and people of color and youth of color in these institutions. And it needs to be addressed. And it's only through experience that she understand and learn that, right? Yeah. And on that same note for researchers, yeah. You can't just look at the numbers. Mm-hmm. You can't just take a nationally representative data set that you think is all cool mm-hmm. and think you know the whole story. Yeah, You got to go <laughs> into the field and back those numbers up or elaborate on those numbers with mm-hmm. actual stories. Mm-hmm. The words of these people, because they're not just ID numbers. They're not just you know, statistics, they're people. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think sometimes also researchers get it wrong right there. Yeah. But we're learning. We're learning. Yeah, we learn. We're getting there. And this is why we need more people um, in these areas, in these spaces of academia or whatever, getting PhDs, doing this research. So that way we can begin to change the overall structure of, you know, what's important and what needs to be done in these institutions and, and beyond. And having the right people informing, that's the key too, informing these policymakers as well, mm-hmm. like the right people doing that. Because they just don't come up with these policies and ideas, you know, just because they wake up one day or from a dream. There's people informing them as like what they feel are the best. And we need more people that really understand and truly understand what's going on and forming these policymakers. And then we'll see better uh, effectiveness and in, in, in response to these pressing issues for sure. Agreed. Agreed. All right. So as always, continue to contact us, follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook at BHD Podcast. Go to our website, www.blackandhollydangerous.com for the latest updates and postings of our episodes. Again, we're on iTunes, SoundCloud, all major platforms for podcast listening as well, email us bhdpodcast at gmail.com with your ideas, thoughts, feedback. Rate us, rate us, review, rate us, review, review, rate us on iTunes. <laughs> <laughs> on iTunes. Um, and so that way we continue to, you know, give you guys what you need and, and be a resource for you all. And other than that, yes. continue to be the oppressor's worst fear. If you're interested in continuing this and other conversations, visit our website, blackandhollydangerous.com to subscribe to our email list, suggest topics, and participate in our discussion forums. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at BHD Podcast. And please don't forget to subscribe and rate our podcast on your favorite platform. And as always, continue to be the oppressor's worst fear.